From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Thomas, Pahoten, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with the listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Today's podcast will be part two of William Bonin. If you missed part one, I'll link it in the notes. So without further ado, let's get back into it. We left off with me analyzing William's childhood in which he endured the most troubling physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, and really abandonment that a child nearly can. So remember the girl he forced himself to date in high school to appease his mother? He and Linda became engaged, and she had become pregnant with his child. And while they were dating, there is a story about him telling her that he had had recurring nightmares where he would rape a faceless young woman in a deserted place before murdering her and burying her in a shallow grave. And she would later say that he did have times where he would wake up in tears and would be visibly shaking. Now, he was sent to Alaska after enlisting, where he served as a cook but was arrested for theft. The case was ultimately dropped. He was then sent to serve in Vietnam. He served in an assault support helicopter unit as an aerial gunner logging over 700 hours of combat and patrol time. Now, it was reported that he risked his own life in one specific occasion while under enemy fire to save the life of a fellow wounded airman 
and he was rewarded with a medal of recognition for this, among other medals. William would later say that he was quite sexually promiscuous during his time overseas, engaging with consenting females and several flings with men as well, and he later confessed to sexually assaulting two soldiers under his command at gunpoint. But he said that while he was fighting in the war, it only served to convince him that human life was grossly overvalued and humans in general overestimated their value in society. This instilled in him a great sense of power and independence, which he hadn't experienced before. After two years in the military, he was honorably discharged in 1968. He was 21 years old. But when he got home, it was not all roses and rainbows. It was then that he discovered Linda had taken their infant son and married someone else. He later said he felt betrayed and quite frustrated. But let's not forget his liaisons while in the military anyway. He got a job at a gas station for a while, but returned home to live with his parents again, much to his frustration. But while he was there, various family members noted that he had come home from the military changed. In late 1968, not even a year after his military discharge, William was driving his mother's car in the later evening when he saw 14-year-old Billy Jones in Arcadia, California, hitchhiking. He pulled over and offered the teen a ride, and Billy accepted. As they drove, William began asking the teen about homosexual acts, which rather quickly began making Billy uncomfortable, so he attempted to escape the car. Bonin grabbed the teen by his genitals and squeezed quite hard. He then told him what he intended to do to him. William then parked the car behind a shopping center that had already closed for the day, handcuffed Billy, and began choking the teen as he told him he would sodomize and murder him if he didn't do exactly what he was told. William then raped Billy as Billy begged for his life. William then knocked the teen unconscious during the attack. Afterward, he dropped Billy off at a park bench and told him that he would kill him if he called the police. But thankfully, Billy did once he got home, which will come into play later. Nine days later, around midnight, William picked up 17-year-old John Treadwell, who was also hitchhiking in Torrance. They began chit-chatting when William started talking about homosexuality and began driving faster and faster. He pulled out a gun and again parked his mother's car in a secluded area where he violently raped the teen and threatened to kill him if he called the police. He then struck him with a tire iron. One week later, William again offered to give a ride to 17-year-old Alan Pruitt, who endured the same assault and abuse as the previous boys. Then after this attack, he, he laid low until a month later, in January 1969, when he picked up 12-year-old Lawrence Bretman in Hermosa Beach. 
He then forced this young boy to orally pleasure him while molesting him and then robbing the boy at gunpoint. He then threatened his life as he had the others if he turned him in. Not even two weeks later, at around 9 p.m., William picked up 18-year-old Jesus Monge, who was also hitchhiking, and side note, and I cannot stress this enough, do not hitchhike. And once the young man was in the car, he immediately began his speech about homosexuality and offered Jesus $20 to give him oral satisfaction. Jesus tried to get out of the car, and and William again grabbed his genitals and squeezed, handcuffed him, and forced Jesus to do it anyway. So, of course, the police were now well aware of the man with longer dark hair and olive-colored skin, a serial rapist preying upon teenage boys. In late January, a policewoman apparently confronted William after another teen boy had narrowly escaped him. She immediately noticed the likeness to the description of the perpetrator and immediately cuffed him and searched him. He was said to have cried, the word sources used was sobbing, actually, and begged her to put him in jail and that he was not responsible for his actions. William was arrested on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation, and one count of child molestation against the five boys he had basically kidnapped and assaulted or attempted to assault. In March, William was psychoanalyzed twice, and it was then determined that he was a sexual psychopath who had little control over his impulses. He also displayed signs of depression and inappropriate emotional responses. He, at first, denied any abuse during his childhood, but he eventually caved and admitted that he had been molested when he was eight years old, and he also suspected multiple molestations between the ages of nine and 12 years old. He admitted he felt guilty molesting young males, and he said he'd like to start a family and become a pilot of all things when he was released. He blamed being in Vietnam for some of his difficulties. William's final evaluation found him to be, quote, seriously lacking insight and responsibility, end quote, for his crimes he had been committing since his childhood. He pleaded guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced to none other than the infamous Atascadero State Hospital in June 1969 as a mentally disordered sex offender who was thought to benefit from treatment. And interesting side note here, guess who else was at Atascadero at this time? None other than Edmund Kemper. He was there finishing up his sentence after murdering his own grandparents years before. That's right. Although Edmund was released six months later into the hands of his mother, and most of us know how that ended. For those that might not know, I did a two-part podcast on him, and I'll put the links in the notes if you are interested. Ed's story is rather interesting, but back to the point. 
I couldn't immediately find whether or not their paths crossed in those six months, but William was subjected to many psychiatric examinations, and we know Ed actually helped administer these with the psychiatrists as well as helping develop some, but in all actuality, it doesn't really matter. I just found this interesting. Moving on. William was subjected to many of these tests, and the results were that he displayed traits of manic depression, which is now called bipolar disorder, sexual sadism disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. So quite the heavy list. For those that aren't familiar, bipolar disorder is characterized by intense mood swings, which can range from extreme highs or mania to extreme lows or depression. Episodes of mania and depression often last for several days or longer. Sexual sadism disorder is characterized by taking sexual pleasure from the humiliation, fear, or another form of mental harm to a person. When someone repeatedly practices these sadistic sexual acts without consent from their partner, or when sadistic fantasies or behaviors cause social, professional, or other functional problems, sexual sadism disorder may be diagnosed. Antisocial personality disorder is a particularly challenging type of personality disorder characterized by impulsive, irresponsible, and often criminal behavior. Someone with antisocial personality disorder will typically be manipulative, deceitful, and reckless, and will not care for other people's feelings. This is, of course, just the briefest of overviews of these issues. So a physical examination of William's body revealed the truth of his time at the orphanage. He had extensive scars on his head and buttocks, which he said he had no memory of receiving, which led the doctors to believe he had repressed the memories. They also mentioned the psychological and emotional damage caused by the unhealthy relationship with his domineering mother, noting that he was still emotionally dependent on her, though she had always held a low opinion of him. William was also found to harbor hostility toward his father and older brother, and it was thought that this sexual behaviors were compulsive in response to undue stress. During his group therapy sessions, the doctors wrote that he held a defensive and aggressive attitude towards some of the other patients, and sources stated that he even admitted that, when he was free, he fully intended on killing his future victims so this would not happen again. Yikes. They classified him as an extreme sociopath, one who had a high probability of reoffending often. But he did seem to be a willing participant in experimental programs and was, overall, considered nonviolent, helpful, and conscientious, as reported by the staff. But this is believed to have been his tactic so that he could possibly get in early release. But this would not be the case, as he was caught engaging in sexual activities with other inmates, two of which were mentally disabled, if you will. 
This earned him several beatings by other inmates. So in 1971, he was transferred to the California Medical Facility, declared unsuitable for further treatment. After three years there, in June 1974, the doctors determined 27-year-old William was, quote, no longer a danger to the health and safety of others, end quote, because, sure. Here we have a man diagnosed with bipolar disorder, sexual sadism disorder, and antisocial personality disorder with extreme sociopathy who was highly likely to reoffend. Certainly sounds like someone who isn't likely to reoffend. Yep. But regardless, after his release, William rented an apartment in Hollywood, fully intending on joining the gay community, but couldn't really get his foot in the door, so to speak, because he was just so lacking in his social skills, and it didn't take very long for him to move back in with his parents. He very briefly worked as a bartender and then taking up being a delivery truck driver, though he was fired after only a couple of months for getting into a wreck. He then decided to take some classes at a local community college, picked back up on his habit for trolling for hitchhikers for sexual encounters, and even managed to pretty seriously date a single mother. But as we all know, he went right back to his most devious behaviors. In September 1975, he went cruising for young boys and spotted 14-year-old David McVicker, who was hitchhiking in Garden Grove. He pulled over and offered David a ride, who was headed to Huntington Beach back home, and David happily accepted. Here is David, in his own words, talking about that night. David McVicker was a 14-year-old schoolboy enjoying the last long, warm days of summer break. Everybody hitchhiked. There was no buses or anything like that. At, say at the beach at the end of the day, it wasn't unusual to see 150 kids down and down there with their beach towel and their thumb out. I just said goodbye to my friends. I left their house and gone to hitchhike home. And as soon as I crossed this major street, a car pulled up next to me. And this guy says, hey, can you tell me where Euclid Street is? I said, it's about a mile ahead. He goes, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go to Brookhurst and go towards the beach. And he said, well, why don't you jump in and I'll give you a ride. And I thought, cool, but that's perfect. I got in the car and everything was cool at first. He was really nice. You would have never thought anything was wrong. And then about maybe five minutes into the ride, he, he said something to ask if I had ever tried anything like a gay act or something like that. And I was kind of in shock. I was like, no, no, I would never do that, you know? And then I immediately tried to get out of the car. I said, do me a favor. I said, pull over, let me out of the car. And he didn't, he started going faster. So I got really scared and I opened up the door and I went like that and I turned around, there was a gun right here. He goes, get back in the car, I'll shoot you. I was scared to death, I was petrified. I knew that I would, something really bad was gonna happen. I didn't know if I was gonna live or die. I was fighting for my life to try to get out of the car. He grabbed me and started beat me up. I knew that if I didn't do what he said, I was gonna die. David's ordeal that summer evening was the stuff of nightmares. 
Yeah, my T-shirt around my neck with the tire iron, you know, that just changed the tire. He had that going through the sleeves of my shirt and he was twisting it, strangling me while he was raping me. And then with what I thought was my last breath because I couldn't breathe in anymore, I just kind of went, God help, like that, and he stopped. Amazingly, Bonin let him go. William attempted to kidnap another teenager and was finally arrested for the assault. When he was arrested, he told law enforcement, quote, next time there won't be any more witnesses, end quote. He was charged with rape, forcible oral copulation of a minor, and attempted kidnapping to which he pleaded guilty. He was sentenced between 1 and 15 years in prison. While there, he actually completed vocational training as a machinist and worked as such in the prison. And due to this, he was released in October 1978 with only 18 months supervised probation. He then moved into an apartment pretty near his parents and became friends with 43-year-old Everett Frazier. William was now 31 years old. Everett threw parties where young men, drugs, and alcohol were the theme, and William was a regular at these parties. Both men's friendship seemed to be built on their shared love of sex with teenage boys. William befriended two young men, Vernon and Gregory. In April 1979, his parole supervision was over. Three months later, William bought a 1972 Ford E100 shorty van. So his friendship with Vernon and Gregory sort of evolved into them openly discussing rape and death, and it escalated to William suggesting they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker. These two young men had their own issues growing up, which is a story for another time. But with a couple of sidekicks, though they were not always with William, the body count would begin. The next month after he bought his van, he met 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren and told him he wanted to meet him at a local skate park with the promise of taking pictures of him for a skateboarding magazine. His remains would be found later that afternoon. William had abducted him bound him, violently raped him, bludgeoned him with a tire jack repeatedly in the head and face, and his skull showed multiple fractures. He had slit the teen's throat, stabbed him several times in the chest and stomach, severed his genitals, which he had bitten repeatedly, and finished him off by strangling him. William then threw the remains in a field. Vernon had accompanied William for this murder. And this is what he did. William had altered his van by removing all inside handles from every door other than his own on the driver's side. He outfitted the van to sort of be a kill kit on wheels, storing ligatures, knives, pliers, wire coat hangers, and other instruments, along with various restraining objects. Whether he was by himself or had one or both of his accomplices with him, 
William targeted mostly young male hitchhikers between the ages of 12 and 19. He preferred lighter-skinned boys who were thin with longer hair. Once he had his victims in the van, either willingly inside or forced, he would overpower them, tie their hands and feet with handcuffs and cord. He raped them, beat them horrifically in the face, head and torso and genitals. His favored method of strangulation was placing the boy's own t-shirt around his neck and using the tire iron to twist the shirt tighter and tighter. Sometimes his victims would be forced to drink hydrochloric acid. Others died from ice picks through their ears or nose, and still others died from impalement through their bottoms. The higher intensity depravity is much like a drug addict needing more and more of their drug of choice in order to achieve the high they require. And really, William later said that this was indeed an addiction. William thrilled in hearing his victims scream, as well as um, not using any sort of lubricant so that his victims would tear and bleed. Once he got his fix, he would discard the bodies like trash near the side of the freeway, thus earning him his nickname of the Freeway Killer. William would then buy newspapers and sort of scrapbook the headlines and articles written about him. Acquaintances would later say that it did seem like he was completely obsessed, consumed with the murders. His need and lust for his sadistic acts was so intense that he did, on occasion, commit a murder and then do it again the next day. If he had one of his accomplices with him, the friend would drive while William assaulted and murdered his prey, or the accomplice would be permitted to also rape the victim. And during all of this, while living with his parents yet again, he gained a reputation for being the local child molester because he would invite underage boys to his house and then they would be heard crying and sometimes even screaming from within. Now, why this wasn't immediately reported is beyond me. Regardless, in April 1980, William murdered 19-year-old Darren Kendrick, whom he and Gregory had sodomized, raped, and force-fed chloral hydrate, causing him to sustain caustic chemical burns in his mouth chin, stomach, and chest. He then vomited on the floor, complained of being dizzy and making whimpering sounds. He was strangled and had an ice pick driven through his ear, causing a severe injury to Darren's cervical spinal cord. William was quoted as saying, quote, the kids started fading out, just kind of whimpering. I don't like raping some limp piece of meat. It's no fun if they don't let me know how it feels. Guess we gave him too much of the stuff. Next time, I figured I wouldn't use as much. Anyways, I'd gotten my rocks off and the kid was getting boring. No fun anymore. So I strangled him. End quote. 
The murders obviously caught the media's attention, and a $50,000 reward was announced for any information that would lead to the successful conviction of the murderer or murderers. Law enforcement from several counties began comparing notes as they tried desperately to find who the murderer was. A task force was created just as one of the excruciatingly few victims that William allowed to go free was consequently arrested for auto theft. This victim recognized William's M.O. and told his counselor about it, who then turned this information over to the police, who then gave the information to the Los Angeles Police Department Homicide Division. This victim was then extensively interviewed, and thus, William Bonin became the prime suspect. Police surveillance began in June 1980, and before the end of the month, they observed William driving around aimlessly and then pulled over into a parking lot. Officers approached the van quietly just as they caught William in the process of raping a 17-year-old runaway who was bound and handcuffed. He was promptly arrested and charged with the rape of a minor. A search of the van found all they needed to show that he was the freeway killer. They also found his scrapbook full of the newspaper clippings in his van. So at first, William denied everything, insisting he was innocent, but he finally admitted he was the freeway killer and began detailing what he had done. It was said that he expressed zero guilt for what he had done, the lives he had taken. But interestingly, he did at least seem to be quite overly embarrassed at being caught. His accomplices were arrested as well and faced their own justice. But William was charged with 16 murders total, found guilty of 10, though it is thought that he committed well over that. He was sentenced to death. The judge stated, quote, He had a total disregard for the sanctity of human life and a civilized society. Sadistic, unbelievably cruel, senseless, and deliberately premeditated, guilty beyond any possible or imaginary doubt, end quote. While sitting on death row, William was known to paint and write, and he actually wrote a series of short stories called Doing Time, Stories from the Mind of a Death Row Prisoner. And he won various awards for his art, short stories, and poems. He kept up with correspondence from various people, including some of the mothers of his victims, but never once showed any remorse for his actions. He even told one of the mothers that her son had been, quote, such a screamer, end quote. He befriended other serial killers, such as Randy Kraft, Douglas Clark, and Jimmy Lee Smith. William was put to death by lethal injection in February 1996 at the age of 46. His family refused to claim his remains. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered over the Pacific Ocean. 
Three days before his execution, an article published in the San Francisco Chronicle said, quote, Bonin was abused as a child. The abuse seems to have been bad, but not nearly as gruesome as the abuse he dealt out. This world is filled with articulate people who can write and paint and were abused as children. Very few of them became serial killers. The crime rate among the mentally ill is lower than among so-called normal people. To call Bonin's evil a psychiatric disorder as a defense has or an illness is to slander the mentally ill, end quote. So what we have here is a man who was born most likely with intergenerational trauma built into the coding of his DNA, brought up in an absolute hellscape of physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect all at the hands of the very people children desperately need to trust and to care for them, and grew up to do the absolute unthinkable. We find his actions inexcusable, unfathomable, though we can at least have some empathy for him. But it still leaves the question that neither of his brothers, subjected to the same nature and nurture situation, grew up to do the horrific things William did. So tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much guys and have a great day.